1 John today, guys. 1 John chapter 3. Let's get in them in our Bibles. And we're going to look at verses 10 through 15 uh, in a message that I've entitled, From Death to Life. And so let's get our way over there, make our way over there, and let's take our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you once again for gathering us together. And now we're just praying that, uh, Father, that you would bless this time of study. And uh, God, that we would be edified, that you'd be glorified, that you'd change our lives. Father, we just need you uh, in this day, in this age to which you've called us, God. You've called us to a time such as this. And so uh, we need that extra measure of your spirit to be poured out in our lives that we might stand tall, stand strong, be a light in this dark and dying world. And so uh, minister to us through your word and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, how, how can you know if you're truly a child of God? Or how can you detect, how can you discern if someone else is truly a child of God? Well, the proof is not in what I say, guys. I can say any number of things that sound affirming to the Christian position. The proof really lies in what my life characteristically displays. The proof is in the practice. You remember the phrase we kind of coined last week? The fruit of my life will reveal uh, the uh, fruit, the root of my life. So the fruit of my life will reveal the root of my life. The characteristic patterns of my life will reveal whether or not I'm truly a child of God or if I'm a child of the devil. Now, I know that can sound a bit disturbing, uh, a bit kind of unsettling, sort of shocking. You know, you say, man, I can't believe that you would call someone a child of the devil. Well, I didn't. But the Word of God does. And in this world... Or I should say at least our current culture with so much emphasis being placed upon personal identity. You know, I identify as, and you can fill in the blank. Generally, it's attached to gender. Not categorically, but generally it is. But you need to understand something, and that is this. When you boil it down to the bottom line, when you get to the brass tacks of the matter, the Bible will identify everyone on this planet in one of two ways. You will either be identified as a child of God or a child of the devil. And there will be certain characteristic patterns in place that testify to that reality in people's lives. For example, uh, back in verse 7, John said, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he, that is Jesus, is righteous. And he who sins is of the devil. So the principle in place that was here is that Jesus has been manifested, Jesus was manifested to take away our sins and to destroy the works of the devil. Therefore, the child of God won't characteristically sin. Uh, that will not be his or her practiced pattern. To live in sin is to show inconsistency with the nature and purpose of Christ in our lives. Doesn't mean we'll never falter, doesn't mean we'll never uh, fail or, or stumble or whatever the case may be, but sin is the exception in the life of the child of God. It is not the habitual practiced pattern. And it's really just that plain. Look at verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Guys, 
Do you see how basic this really is? Sometimes it's difficult for us to receive something on a basic level. We have a tendency, we, we, we think things like, man, there's got to be more than this, you know. Uh, there's got to be more to it. I've got to be missing something. It can't be that easy. Not really. But John would say, yes, it really can be, and it really is. Man likes to make things complicated. We like to seem scholarly. Uh, we like to uh, cloud things in ambiguity, add all sorts of what-if scenarios, and see if we can tweak it just slightly. But guys, that's when things begin to get convoluted and cloudy and confusing. And it's imperative that we resist the temptation to complicate the simple instruction, the plain truth of God's Word. That's how the enemy gets in there, starts to fill in all the nooks and crannies, all those in-between areas. Paul exhorted the Corinthians after the same manner. He said, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Don't stray from the simplicity that's in Christ. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or made known. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Do you see how simple that is? Guys, don't make it more than it is. The fruit of someone's life reveals the, 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 the root of someone's life. And that's not judging anyone. It's simply acknowledging what the practiced pattern of a person's life reveals about the person. It's a simple statement of truth. Regardless of what I might say, if I have no heart to live for God, if it is not found anywhere in me to seek to bring glory to God, listen, I'm not a child of God. And these are what we might refer to as indicators. Sometimes I call them fingerprints of the Spirit of God upon a person's life. If a person has been born again, there will be certain, let's say, essential elements about their life. Uh, one will be righteous conduct. They will be a person of integrity, honesty, their language won't be all filthy. They'll be upright morally. Here, John gives us even another essential element in the life of one who's a child of God. Did you see it here in verse 10? Love for other believers. And man, I'm so glad that the Spirit of God led John to say this. Because so often, you, you may have discovered, I've discovered that People who are all about righteousness, it's easy to find them lacking in love. You know what I'm talking about? They can be stuck up, um, I, you know, spiritual snobs, you might say, pharisaic, just pharisaical in nature. You know, if the Pharisees were about anything, they were all about righteousness. Now, it was a, a self-righteousness, of course, but they completely lacked in love. So... John says, if you're born again of the Spirit of God, 
not only will, will there be an absence of something negative, you know, Jesus was manifested to take away our sins, but there will be the presence or the addition of something positive. Love for the brethren. And these are both essential. If you have righteousness without love, as we mentioned, you have self-righteous piety. You have spiritual snobbery. And it can even escalate to brutality. We've seen that with the Pharisees and religious leaders in the life of the Lord and the persecution of the early church. But if you have love without righteousness, you have, ultimately, you have hypocrisy. You're accepting anything in the name of love. Just accept them, uh, you know, uh, love them, don't offend them. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. And Paul was like, what are you guys doing? Guys, true love is expressed in righteousness, not at the expense of righteousness. Listen, when it comes to righteousness and love, he goes, well, what's the balance there? Listen, we're not looking for a balance between the two. Why? Because they're not opposites. I've spoken to you in times past about the absolute inseparable relationship between truth and love. Uh, they're so closely related that I submit to you, they're essentially one and the same. You know, love is truth and truth is love. You really can't administer one apart from the other. Not, not really, not appropriately. Well, here we learn the same may be said of love and righteousness. We don't need a balance between them. We need the full expression of both of them. Guys, think of Jesus Christ. He perfectly displayed the full expression of righteousness and love. He did not pull either back to sort of uh, balance the scales. He fully, perfectly expressed both. We might even go as far as to say that love is righteousness in action and righteousness is love in action. So that, and I don't know, guys, if you're grammar specialists, forgive me, but we might say that truth is love in noun form and righteousness is love in verb form. That makes sense? Righteousness is love in action. And it's not like this is some new novel concept that John is, is bringing to the table. Uh, notice verse 11. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Guys, have you noticed this pattern with John, how he's always taking us back to the beginning? He's always run to go back to the beginning. Now, it might be the beginning of time, as in his gospel you know, or even, even, yeah, even before the beginning, in the beginning was the word, you know, from beyond the vanishing point, and the word was with God, and, and, and God was the word, or the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, and on and on he goes there. But he takes us back before the creation of time into the, and, then, and it may be the beginning of the physical 
literal creation. He does that in his gospel as well. And then he also might even just be talking about the beginning of your walk with Christ. The message you've heard from the very beginning. The very day you accepted Jesus, you heard a message and that message is continuing on, you see. And when Jesus was walking amongst his disciples, he told them, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's the message you've heard from day one of your Christian life. It's the most basic foundational fact of the Christian life. If you belong to Jesus, you will love others who belong to him as well. Sometimes people have this thought, well, I love the Lord, but man, Christians get on my nerves, you know. Uh, Me and Jesus, we're good. Uh, It's all his followers I have problems with. But Jesus says, no, no, a thousand times, no. It's not that way. If you love me, you'll love my family. It's true that Christians talk a lot about a personal relationship with Jesus. And guys, that's it. we need that. We can't do life apart, uh, life in Christ without that. Having said that, how we love one another, how we treat one another, it's a big deal before God. It doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. Um, or that life in Christ or with other Christians is this kind of primrose, problem-free path. Far from it. Sometimes, guys, that love is hard-fought, and it's won through forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. But make no mistake, if you're in Christ, you will love the body of Christ. You will love other believers. Now look at verse 12. He says, not as Cain. So let's look back at verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. So here's that contrast, comparison and contrast. This is another thing as you study uh, 1 John. He's, he's always taking us back to the beginning, but then he's always rationalizing. You know, he's always reasoning. He's always creating his case. From He's reasoning from extremes. He compares, he contrasts, positive and negative. And he has this style of illustrating from extremes, showing how that ultimately something is either on or it's off. It's right or it's wrong. And if you're in Christ, you'll be all about the right thing. Unlike, see, he swings to the negative, not like Cain, who was about the wrong thing. And his actions demonstrated something about his life. The fruit of his life revealed the root of his life. He was of the wicked one. He didn't love his brother. He hated his brother. He wasn't a child of God. He was a child of the devil. Do me a favor. Put your finger here, your little ribbon here, your marker here, whatever it is that you have, and let's go back to the beginning, shall we? Let's let's turn left in our Bibles all the way to the front in the book of Genesis uh, chapter 4. We'll do just what John likes to do. We'll just go back to the beginning. And let's look at Genesis chapter 4 together. 
And we'll see exactly uh, what John is talking about here. I'm going to go ahead and mark my area here in 1 John. Get my, get my phone back. Are you there? We good to go? I hear still some beautiful pages wrestling there. Genesis chapter 4. Some of your pages are probably kind of stuck together there because you haven't read the book of Genesis in a long time. So I'm waiting on you to parse it and pull them open and this and that and, you know. Genesis chapter 4, look at the very first verse. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. This means they had sexual relations, okay? He knew her intimately. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, uh, Eve, this is Eve speaking, and said, uh, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, underline it, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, let's stop right there. Genesis chapter 4 takes place directly after the fall of Adam and Eve. And these are the first two boys that they had. Now, there's obviously a number of things, and we'll look at a few things. There's a number of things that we could consider about this passage, but ultimately, at least here initially, we want to stay focused on John's point. He wants us to see the root, and he wants us to see the fruit. People like to speculate exactly why did God accept Abel's offering but reject Cain's. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abel made his offering in faith, and Cain did not. Really, that's the bottom line, okay? But without faith, the Bible says, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to him must first of all believe, who he, believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, Cain may have had the right appearance outwardly, yes, I mean, he went through the right motions, he went to church, as it were, he gave an offering, uh, it all had the right appearance, but his motive, the why behind the what that he did was off inwardly. So outwardly things were looking good. Kind of reminds me, it takes me back to that scene, remember when Jesus was with the Lord and he saw the fig tree, or uh, pardon me, with his disciples and they saw the fig tree from afar and he thought, oh, I'm going to go get me something to eat. And he went over and he began to inspect it closely. And as he got in there, he saw there was no fruit on it and he began to curse it. And he said, let no fruit ever grow on you again. In other words, things look good from a distance. Outwardly things are good, but inwardly upon close inspection, you see things aren't as they should be. 
Man looks to the outward appearance, but God searches the heart. And so, God accepted Abel's offering, rejected Cain's, but rather than repent or consider where he erred, Cain did what we like to do. He got mad at his brother. And he didn't like to see God's hand of blessing on Abel. After all, Abel's no better than I am. Why are you blessing him and not blessing me? Why are you accepting him? Why are you rejecting me? We did the same thing. You see, he brought you an offering. I brought you an offering. And he began to get mad. He became bitter. And his bitterness became hatred. And his hatred became murder. Now, God tried to get in front of him, didn't he? He said, Cain, hey, hey, why are you angry? See, God's seeking to lead him to repentance. He's encouraging him to examine his own heart. He says, look, Cain, if you'll repent, if you do well, I will accept you. Listen to me, Cain. Sin is after you. It's seeking to dominate. It's seeking to destroy you. God is faithful to warn us, isn't he? He tries to get in front of us. There you are, you're thinking through, you're considering some sort of sin or whatever the case may be, and God, the Holy Spirit is there, and he's convicting you. He's seeking to get in front of you. You're going, hey, what are you doing? You need to think this through. You need to stop. Sin is seeking to dominate you. It wants to destroy you. It's for you, but you should rule over it. You should walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh, you see. But Cain wasn't having it. He wouldn't listen. He hated his brother. He murdered his brother. His works were, well, our word is evil. More literally, the word here in 1 John is pernicious. See, an evil person is willing to perish in their own corruption. But a pernicious person wants to drag everyone around them down with them. And that's satanic. A couple of things, and then we'll move on. Number one, Cain's hatred resulted in murder, literal, physical murder. But Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 told us that hatred and murder are the same thing as far as the heart is concerned. You don't have to murder someone physically to kill them off in your heart. They're dead to me, you see, as far as I'm concerned. That's what hatred is. Number two, you should see that Satan's children can be religious. Cain worshiped at an altar. He went through the motions. He made a sacrifice. Again, we call to mind the Pharisees. They were the most religious people of their day. But listen to me, being religious is not the true test of devotion to God. Love for God and for God's people. There's the true test. A true child of God won't be about hatred and seeking to tear others down. They'll show love. They'll seek to build others up. For time's sake, just write it down. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 29. And then you can skip a little section, and it'll be verses 36 through 43. It's the parable of of the tares, the wheat and the tares. You cannot always discern the difference initially between a child of God and a child of the devil. Outwardly, they may have many of the same appearances, but eventually the fruit will show. 
And God will deal with it in his time and in his way. But guys, check this out. Cain and Abel had the same parents, the same godly upbringing and instruction in love and righteousness. They were both taught the importance of knowing God, of serving God from the heart, but ultimately they chose two different directions. Cain chose the way of evil, and he murdered his brother, and then he lied about it. Where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Listen, Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, right? John 8, 44. Here's my point. Not every child, maybe this is a word for some parent, not every child who chooses to walk the wrong path is a result of poor parenting. Or maybe it's a, a word for someone who has a word or a thought, a, a position of doubt about what's happening in someone else's home. Because by grace, your kids have gone the right way. You know, sometimes it may be. Sometimes kids go the wrong way because, because of poor parenting. I mean, I, I won't take away from that. But we err to presume categorically Sometimes parents beat themselves up. They're like, where did I go wrong? Where did I fail? Guys, as parents, we fail in innumerable ways. Some think that when they see a child choose the wrong path, again, they're just being parented poorly. Cain and Abel serve to teach us that godly parenting can only take a child so far. Guys, we can do all that we can, we can to, to set our children up for success, to lead them to their godly heritage in the Lord. But ultimately, each individual is accountable personally to choose to surrender to Jesus Christ. And so lead them in the way that they should go. Pray for them. Minister to them. Be there on behalf of them. But the day is going to come when they have to make a decision. And our prayer is that they surrender to Jesus Christ. Amen. Someone asked me the other day, what's your worst fear? I said that, my, that I would not be with my kids forever in eternity. That's it. That's all I want. And that's it, you know. My kids, are, that's why John said, no greater joy do I have than to know that my children walk in truth. Pray for your kids, man. Today is not, you know, every generation thinks, how could it get any worse? Man, I remember when I was in high school and I just thought, man, the debauchery, the depravity. Of course, I was an unbeliever. I was loving it, you know. I was wallowing in the mire and in the muck. But I thought, man, I don't see how it could ever get worse. It can always get worse. And each generation is just tougher and tougher and tougher. Man, how our kids need our prayers and our support and our encouragement. That the Lord would help us to do well in passing that baton to the next generation. That they might run the race to win. You know what I mean? Verse 13, 1 John chapter 3, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Hey, guys, the shock, the surprise shouldn't be if the world hates you. Oh, I'm such a good person. I'm always trying to help people. I'm always loving on people. I don't understand why these people hate me. Have you read the Beatitudes? Jesus speaks about the attitudes that should be in our lives. Humility, meekness, righteousness, mercy, purity, 
of heart, how, how that we should be peaceable. And you think, man, who wouldn't love a person like that? Someone who is just humble and, and meek and loving and pure of heart and thirsting for righteousness. And they're always making peace. And they're such a peaceable person. And, and who wouldn't love someone like that? This person should win the Nobel Peace Prize or something. And then he says, oh, and by the way, that's the kind of person that's going to be persecuted. But be of good cheer. You're in good company with that. And you think, wait, what? How does that work? Well, look no farther than to Jesus Christ himself. The very embodiment of each of those things. How'd the world treat him? Why? Well, listen, your purity shines a light on their perversion. Uh, your humility kind of uh, elevates, it, it, it demonstrates their pride. Your mercy makes known their cruelty and self-centeredness. Your love for righteousness exposes their love for wickedness and sinfulness, and they don't like that. And so they can either turn from their sin or they can turn on you. Do not marvel when the world hates you. The shock, the surprise is when hatred is expressed within the body of Christ. It ought not be. Your family, you see. And love is characteristic of the one who's been born again. Hatred is characteristic of the unregenerate, the one who is of the world. Now look at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Guys, John's all about those litmus tests, isn't he? How can you know that you've been born again? By the way, God doesn't want you lacking surety, struggling with uncertainty, second-guessing your salvation. He wants you to have confidence in Him and in His Word, the promise of His Word. And a basic sign of being born again is love for the people of God. If you don't have a love for the family of God or the body of Christ, then you do well to make your calling and election sure. It's not inappropriate for you to question if you've been born again. You, if you have no love for the body of Christ, you are in a place of being, what the Bible calls, dead in sin before God. And you need to, our words here, are pass over to life in Christ. By the way, I love the continuity of Scripture, man. The more you study it, the more you pick up on it, and you begin to get maybe an, even an idea of perhaps what the person was thinking when they were writing. Of course, we can never know for sure what's happening in someone's mind and all of that, but the continuity is there. As we mentioned earlier, Jesus had instructed his disciples again and again of the importance of love. 
And Jesus had told them, by this all will know that you're my disciples, you know, that you love one another. In other words, people should be able to look at our lives. Someone should be able to look at your life and the attitude and the affection that you have toward other believers and know that you belong to Jesus. Man, this guy, this gal, they must be a follower of Christ. You can just tell by how much they love other Christians. Man, they're always hanging around other Christians and such. Guys, I'm just going to be honest with you. Before I surrendered my heart to Jesus Christ, before I was born again of the Spirit of God, I really had no desire to be around Christians. In fact, Christians kind of got on my nerves. Uh, Always talking about God. Never, I thought, having any fun. They're the killjoys. They're the fun suckers in the room, you know, uh, awkward conversations, always making me feel bad about what I wanted to do. At least that's how I perceived it. The truth is that it wasn't the person doing anything. It was just the conviction of the Holy Spirit pressing in on my life, revealing to me that I'm in sin. But I wanted to be in sin, right? I mean, uh, so I wanted to get away from the Christian and the conviction But something happens, man, when you raise that white flag of unconditional surrender before Jesus Christ, and old things pass away, and all things are made new, and now you, there you are, for some reason you're finding yourself wanting to be around other believers. There's just something refreshing and renewing and encouraging and edifying about the whole thing. There's joy in it. And the tables turn. Now it's uncomfortable being around people who are always talking about how they're pressing into their sin and they're flaunting it and they're boasting it and they're bragging about it and filth is spewing out of their mouth. And I just don't want to hear it. I prefer to be built up by my brothers and sisters in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not natural. It's supernatural. And it bears witness that you have passed from death, which is the natural state of man, dead in sin. You have passed from death to life. You are now alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Karen, you want to come on forward? And, And look, guys, John continues to cut it straight. Earlier in our previous passage, back in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, he told us that Loving the brethren was a matter of light and darkness. Here, John takes us even deeper. He says, it's a matter of life and death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By the way, hatred can be shown passively just as readily as it can be shown actively. And again, I'm not saying that hurt isn't real. I'm not saying that offenses don't happen or any of that, guys. But even if you've been bruised and battered by some brother or sister, some unloving brethren, as it were, if you love Jesus Christ, there's still going to be something in you that's drawing you back to fellowship with the body of Christ. You love the brethren. Again, I'm not saying you don't have to work through and and come to 
forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration and that fighting of the good fight and all of that. But man, you're going to want to come back, you know? The natural or the normal experience of the unsaved, Titus chapter 3 and verse 3 tells us is hateful and hating one another. There's envy, there's jealousy, all of the things. But when you're born again, and God takes up residence in your heart and your life through the person of His Holy Spirit, guys, God is love. Hateful and hating one another is not the norm for the believer. We're to love one another, to share the message of light and life in Christ Jesus with others. We want to see others pass from death to life. The natural progression of man is life to death. Yeah? Jesus turns that around. He takes us out of death and gives us life, eternal life. It's the result of turning from our sin and trusting in Him. And I'd encourage you, don't leave here today without eternal life abiding in you. And if you've not given your life to Christ, I'll also tell you this. Jesus doesn't bargain. There's no negotiation. Unconditional surrender is your only option. Raise the white flag of unconditional surrender before the Lord today, and you'll never be the same. In Jesus' name. Father, we just, uh, we thank you for the clarity and the simplicity of your word and for sharing with us and showing to us those characteristics that will be evident in our lives as your children so that there's no confusion, so that we can examine ourselves accurately and honestly. And God, I just pray for my family here that you just give us grace to let go of any bitterness or hurt, that we would walk in forgiveness and humility and love for the glory of your name, God. Lord, I just, I'm just reminded of, of your example. And how that even as the nails were being driven into your hands by those who would hurt you, hate you, look to do damage to you, even destroy you. And how you would say, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Just give us that heart. Father, forgive them. Guys, I don't know what's going on in every heart and life here. While we're just here in this kind of this prayer posture, 
our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Just kind of letting God have his way. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've not given your life to Christ, you haven't passed from death to life, I'm encouraging you to take that trip today. Don't leave here with unsettled business between you and God. God loves you. And Christ died for you. New life's available to you. And it comes by His grace through faith in Him. So it doesn't matter how old or young you are, where you've been or what you've done, Christ came into the world to save sinners. We all qualify. If you need Christ to come into your life and to make you new, you're raising that flag today, so to speak, as it were. Well then, humble yourself before Him. I'm going to encourage you just to raise your hand so I can see you, and I'll pray for you. If I see your hand, I'll let you know, and you can put it down. I won't hold you in that place, but if you need to give your life to Christ, uh, listen, don't be, uh, <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is be, be bold in your assertion of that. Say, yeah, today is a day of salvation for me. Can I pray for anyone in that capacity? Today, don't miss your moment. Okay. Well, then, Lord, I thank you for this message that you've kind of tailor-made for us today as as a body, as a family. Help us to love one another in the manner, Lord, that honors you, that brings glory to you, and that comes truly from the heart. Help us, Lord, not to fall into ruts and routines and going through motions and all. But that the patterns of our lives would be genuine and unto you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.